Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your law is perfect, reviving the soul. Your testimony is sure, making wise the simple. Your precepts right, rejoicing the heart. Your commandment is pure, enlightening the eyes. Your word is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. And so teach us all now, and as I preach, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my of the hearts of all listening, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you'll please open your Bibles now to our sermon text, 1 Samuel chapter 8. You'll find that in the Pew Bibles on page 230. First Samuel chapter 8. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel... And the name of his second, Abijah, they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations." But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from, this, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will, he will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us 
and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. This morning we continue our sermon series on the topic of civil government. Last week we saw how God established the Noahic covenant with all living creatures and with the earth itself in order to preserve his creation and to set the stage for the outworking of his plan of redemption. One part of the Noahic covenant was to establish civil government. And as we saw, civil government as God established it is legitimate, deriving its authority from God himself. And yet it is provisional, both temporary and sinful, as it is composed of sinful men. Civil governments are also common as they are given to all men and accountable to God, who is the judge of all. This morning, we will continue our series by looking at the civil government of Old Testament Israel, which will take us two weeks. We'll begin with the establishment of Israel as a holy nation state at Mount Sinai, and go up to their first king, King Saul, this morning. Next week, we'll continue in the history of Israel from King David up to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are not just surveying the history. Mainly, we are seeking to draw out what we can learn about the principles of civil government, which we can apply for times today. We'll consider not just the principles and the laws themselves, but also the structure of how the laws were taught and enforced. We'll then move on to look at what Israel's history teaches us about kingship, both the problems Israel encountered without a king and the warnings that the prophet Samuel gave them when they demanded a king like the nations around them. As we seek to understand what the Bible teaches us about civil government, Israel is particularly instructive because its civil laws and governmental structures were given by direct revelation from God himself. Still, we'll see that even this government over God's holy nation was provisional, both temporary and staffed by sinful human beings, and therefore capable of great evil. Though established with the purpose of maintaining and promoting justice, it often failed in its responsibility and accomplished exactly the opposite. And so just like every other human government, it makes us pray even more fervently, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we long for the fullness of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we'll proceed under three headings this morning. First, God establishes Israel as a holy nation. Second, the principles of government in Israel. And third, kingship in Israel. So first... God establishes Israel as a holy nation. You know, the story of how Israel was delivered out of their bondage in Egypt through God's mighty hand. He worked ten plagues, culminating in the Passover, bringing death on the firstborn sons of Egypt, but passing over the Israelites who took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, which was a foreshadowing of the coming Lamb of God, our Savior Jesus Christ. And the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea on dry land. But when Pharaoh and his armies tried to pursue them, they were drowned in the waters of the sea. Then the Lord brought them through the wilderness to Mount Sinai, where he met with them and delivered to them the Ten Commandments. It was there on the mountain that he declared, 
You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 19, 4 and 6. In these words, we see that Israel is constituted as a holy, theocratic nation, a nation in covenant with God. In other words, they are an exception to the general rule that we saw in the Noahic covenant. Rather than having a common civil government, they have a religious civil government, as they are a holy nation, a nation set apart for the Lord. There is no separation of church and state in Israel. In fact, to be a member of Israel is to be a member of the visible church, as well as to be a citizen of the nation. Now, we know that does not necessarily mean that each person had saving faith and was a member of the invisible church. But every Israelite was a member of both the church and the nation. The two were intertwined in Israel. This explains the many ways that Israel as a nation is unique and its government differs from the norm. They are not ruled merely by the natural law like all the other nations. They are rather bound by the Mosaic law given by direct revelation by God. And as a nation in covenant with the Lord, they are granted the promised land as their possession. But with the condition that they must remain obedient to the Lord or he will cast them out of that land into exile. And of course, the Lord predicts already in the book of Deuteronomy that this very thing will come to pass as it, in fact, eventually did. What does all this mean for us this morning? We now live after the coming of Christ, after he instituted the new covenant in his blood. And while Israel still continues as a people, they are no longer a nation as they once were. Certainly, I recognize there is now a modern state of Israel founded in 1948, but that is something altogether different. Now, under the new covenant, the kingdom of Christ is advancing through all the nations of the world. But each country has its own common civil government. And yet, we have much that we can still learn from the civil government and the civil laws of Israel. In Reformed theology, we speak of the three uses of the law. First, the law shows us our sin, and it drives us to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second, the law instructs all people, including civil rulers, in what is right and wrong for the restraining of sin and the right ordering of a just society. And third, the law is of use to Christians to instruct us and direct us how we may please God. For our purposes this morning, we want to consider that second use of the law. We want to learn what we can from the government and the laws of Israel, what they have to teach us about civil government. At the same time, we must always remember the distinction that Israel was a holy theocratic nation and no one today lives in a holy theocratic nation. Our goal is not to recreate Israel or to abolish the separation of church and state in our country. 
since we live under a common civil government in accordance with the Noahic covenant. At the same time, that does not mean that we agree with those who claim we must completely leave all religion behind in order to enter into the public square. No, we engage in public as who we truly are, as ambassadors of Christ, as salt and light in a dark and dying world. Furthermore, our public leaders are accountable to God for their success or failure to maintain and promote justice according to the natural moral law. So now let's consider part two, the principles of civil government in Israel. While Israel had its human government and authorities, God was always its supreme ruler and lawgiver. In this section, I want to look briefly at some of the legal principles that stand out in the Mosaic Law. Immediately following the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, God gives a law book, often referred to as the covenant code given in Exodus 21 to 23. I preached through this in detail in my sermon series on Exodus. Now, I'll just touch on a few of the principles of these chapters and elsewhere in the Mosaic Law this morning. The first of these I covered already last time. The lex talionis, the principle of proportional punishment of crimes. It's the most basic principle of all justice. It applies to every category of crime. Whatever sort of harm is done to another, the appropriate punishment to the criminal is to be proportional to the harm done. No more and no less. Now, usually this is not inflicted in terms of bodily punishment because the emphasis is on providing restitution to the victim of the crime. If an animal is stolen, the animal or its equivalent is to be restored along with an added penalty depending on the situation. The basic principle is to make the victim whole as if the crime had never happened. The same is applied to damaged dwellings or fields. Another important principle of justice is that facts are to be established by two or three witnesses. One witness is not sufficient. Along with this, if it is discovered that a person is falsely accusing someone else to seek to harm him, the punishment that he sought against his fellow man is to be dealt to him instead. It's very dangerous to bring a false accusation. The next principle is to differentiate between intentional and unintentional crimes, particularly in the crime of murder. These laws are detailed in Numbers chapter 35. If a person accidentally causes the death of another, he was to flee to one of six cities of refuge where he would be able to live out the rest of his life, restricted and yet able to live out his life. This principle lives on today in our modern legal system in the differentiation between first and second degree murder and what is usually called third degree murder or manslaughter. These are just a few of the many, many principles of the Mosaic Law. But you can see that they are filled with the wisdom of God. Now let's consider the execution or the enforcement of the law. We see that this is at first being handled by Moses all alone. Now here, you can turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 18. In verse 13, we read that Moses would sit to judge the people from morning to night. 
Uh, Since there were more than a million adult Israelite men, plus women and children, the people had to wait in line day after day to bring their disputes before Moses. When Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, confronts Moses with the inefficiency of his system, Moses explains he's not only sitting as judge, he's also fulfilling another important function. He is instructing the people, making known to them the statutes and the laws of the Lord. And yet, he's also doing this in an incredibly inefficient way as well, giving instruction case by case, only as the need arises. So Moses alone is serving as both the prophet and the judge of all of Israel. Jethro advises, there is a better way, verse 17. What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men, From all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves, and it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure." And all this people also will go to their place in peace. Jethro's solution is two-pronged. First, Moses is to play the role of the prophet and teacher to instruct all the people in the law of God. Second, he is to set up a system of elders who are to be set over the people as judges, from one judge over a small group of ten households to a system of appellate courts over fifty, one hundred, and 1,000 households. Then if there is something that no other judge can handle, a great matter, Moses himself would serve as the Supreme Court judge. Jethro also describes the qualification for these judges, able men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. It's important to know here that the concept of elders was not entirely novel. In fact, the elders of Israel were present in a judicial role in the previous chapter. The elders were already there. Moses just wasn't taking advantage of them in governing the people of Israel. Perhaps some weeding out would need to be done based on these qualifications, but it was a simple solution. Moses just needed to put it into practice. The name for this system today is Presbyterianism, oversight by Presbyters, which is simply the Greek word for elders. And Jethro says, I'm merely giving you advice. He puts it this way in verse 23. If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure. His advice is ultimately subject to God's judicial review because in the end, the Lord is the supreme ruler of Israel. And we see at the end of chapter 18, Moses does put the system into practice. After Israel comes into the promised land, every city and town would have its own elders. 
who sat in the city gate to handle these matters of justice and instruction in the law of the Lord. The question arises, after Moses, who would serve as the supreme judge? Moses is succeeded by his faithful assistant Joshua, who leads Israel into the promised land. And the book of Judges records how the Lord raised up a series of judges who primarily lead Israel in battle to deliver Israel from those who oppressed her. But also at times they serve as traveling judges to maintain justice internally. And all of this is leading up to the day when Israel would have a king. This brings us to our third point this morning. Kingship in Israel. The fact that Israel would have one, one day would have a king is predicted in the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy 17. We already read it this morning. You may want to open there again now. The Lord says that the day would come when Israel would desire to set a king over themselves like the nations around them, and a king is permitted them. However, the Lord gives several laws which are designed partly to limit the king's power, but primarily to keep the king's heart faithful to the Lord. First, the Lord makes clear that he is the one who will choose the king. Second, the king must be an Israelite, not a foreigner. Third, the king must not acquire many horses or return to Egypt to purchase horses. Horses were not common in Israel. They were mainly used in battle, not for mounted cavalry, but for pulling chariots, which were like the tanks of ancient warfare. A point of this restriction is that the king was not to put his trust in a strong army, but to trust in the Lord to fight his battles. It's also a reminder that the Lord delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt, and the people are never to return there, never to ally themselves with Egypt. Fourth, the king must not acquire many wives. Marrying many wives was not just a way to indulge the flesh. It was primarily a way to cement alliances with other powerful families and to have many children and so to build up one's household and increase the power of the king's dynasty. Fifth, the king must not acquire excessive silver and gold. This one's pretty self-explanatory. He was not to set his heart on the things of this world, to put his trust in gold or silver rather than in the Lord. From this list of the three things forbidden, there's a foreshadowing of King Solomon who grievously transgressed each of these three laws. And sixth and finally, the positive requirement, the king was to personally write a copy of the law. He wasn't just to write it down, but then to read it daily so that he might learn to fear the Lord and so to keep and to do all the words of the law of the Lord. The outcome, verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Of all the requirements in this section, this was surely the most important. It would help enable all the rest and certainly was also the most neglected. The fact that Israel would one day have a king was not just a happenstance of history. It was part of the Lord's unfolding plan for his people. And as you know, 
the Lord Jesus Christ would descend from the line of King David and he would perfectly fulfill all the law of God, including the law of the king. He came to be our eternal righteous king and not just a king of an earthly kingdom, but the king of the eternal kingdom of God. So we see here in the law of Moses, provision made for a king. But it would be many centuries before a king would be set over Israel. Now let's fast forward in the history of Israel to the time of the judges. After the stable leadership of Moses and then Joshua, the book of Judges opens with the death of Joshua in chapter 2, verse 8. The following verses tell of how the people of Joshua's generation continued to serve the Lord, but the next generation, they turned aside and began to serve idols. Thus began a vicious cycle which would repeat for several generations. The Lord would punish Israel by sending foreign nations to oppress them until in their distress they returned to him and called out to him to deliver them. And reading chapter 2, verse 18 Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways." And this cycle repeats itself again and again in this book. Let's look at one judge who gives us an insight into kingship. Gideon's story is told in Judges chapter 6 through 8. He's not portrayed in a very flattering light as the Lord had to convince him with multiple miracles to lead the people into battle against the Midianites. But eventually he does obey the Lord and the Lord delivers the Midianites into his hands. After the battle, we read in Judges 8, 22 and 23, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. In this response, we see a wise refusal. Rather than accepting kingship, he directs the people to look to the Lord as their king. At the same time, Gideon will go on to make an ephod which will lead the people into a false worship. Even worse, he names one of his sons Abimelech, meaning literally, my father the king. And this son will go on to try to set himself up as a king in the next chapter. So Gideon is not the most exemplary character in Israel's history. But he did the right thing in refusing to be made king and pointing the people to the Lord. As the cycle of the judges continues, we see that by the last four chapters of the book, Israel has descended into political and moral anarchy. These chapters tell the horrifying story of the men of Gibeah abducting the concubine of a traveler who was passing through and they rape her throughout the night to the point that she died from the abuse. In many ways, it is a repeat of the sin of Sodom, if not more gruesome and horrifying. The men of Gibeah are Benjaminites, and when the news of this crime gets out, all the tribes of Israel rally for war against Benjamin, 
and the, ben- the tribe of Benjamin is nearly wiped out. Men, women, and children. Only 600 men escape. The leaders of the tribe are now, they now discuss what to do. They're so grieved that an entire tribe might be wiped out. And so they come up with a solution which is perhaps equally horrible. First, they discover there was one, tri- one city, Jabesh Gilead, that did not pers- participate in their slaughter of the Benjaminites. So they slaughter the entire population of that city, save for 400 of its young virgin daughters. These they kidnap and give to the Benjaminites for wives. Since there are not enough virgins, they encourage the remaining 200 men to kidnap wives for themselves at a yearly festival. The overall impression you get from this section of the book is the terrible depravity into which the entire nation has fallen. It's a wonder that God's wrath doesn't break out against them at this point. And so these chapters repeat the refrain four times, which is also the concluding verse of the book, Judges 21-25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. One of the problems of the judges is that a judge would arise and lead Israel for a time, but when the judge died, he would have no successor, and the people would fall back into their idolatry. And as we saw, this got worse with each succeeding generation. The difference with a king was that a king establishes a dynasty. The king passes on his throne to his son. It certainly doesn't guarantee that the son will be as faithful as his father, as the history of Israel will prove. But it does provide greater stability. Let's now move on to the final judge, Samuel, and the rise of Israel's first king. We read in 1 Samuel 8 of how Samuel in his old age appoints his sons to be judges after him. That they were wicked judges, taking bribes and perverting justice. In response, the elders of Israel gather before Samuel and ask Samuel to appoint a king over them as judge, like the nations around them. While Samuel is displeased with this request, taking it as a rejection of himself, the Lord replies to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. The Lord rightly interprets their request as a rejection of himself. So Samuel goes on to warn them, to warn the people the many harms a king, like the nations, will bring upon them. These are abuses of power that are common among civil authorities even to this day. And two are foremost. First, we see conscription of labor, which is just a polite term for forcing people into slavery, a term which Samuel doesn't hesitate to use. The people will be, con- or the men will be conscripted to serve in the army, but also to plow and to harvest the king's fields. 
Even the women would not escape, as they would be conscripted as perfumers, cooks, and bakers. And second, we see heavy taxes, which in Israel would include the seizure of people's ancestral fields. He would take a tenth of the people's harvests and their flocks. It's important to note that until this time, there was only a light annual temple tax in Israel. And conscription was completely unknown. Now these two things would be commonplace and oppressive. While the king would raise an army to deliver them from the oppression of foreign nations, the question lingers in the air. Who will deliver them when their own king is a tyrant and is their oppressor? So Samuel warns the people. But what is their response? Verse 19. That the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, No, that there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. And we know it had always been the Lord's plan to raise up a king for his people Israel. But because they asked with wrong motives, out of a lack of trust in him and a desire to be like the nations around them, rejecting his call that they be a holy nation, a nation set apart, their first king Saul would be a scourge to them. He will at least partially deliver them from their enemies, but he will also fulfill the warnings delivered by Samuel. He doesn't accumulate horses, wives, and gold as forbidden in the law of the king. But neither does he copy and stay faithful to the law of the Lord. Israel may be mostly free from foreign oppressors, but now they will be enslaved to the king they set over themselves. They will have to await their second king, King David, for a king after the Lord's own heart. And we will begin next time looking at King David and the gracious covenant the Lord makes with him. This morning we've covered a lot of ground. We've seen how God established Israel as a holy nation at Mount Sinai and how he gave them civil laws to make them wiser than all the nations. He only touched briefly on the principles embodied in those laws this morning, but they deserve much deeper study. They are profitable not only to teach us how we may please God in our personal lives, but also to instruct our civil authorities in how to maintain and promote justice. We then looked at how these laws were enforced, first by Moses alone, and then with the help of a Presbyterian system of courts staffed by the elders of the people. As we progressed into the era of the judges, we saw how the people lacked not only leadership in general, but also justice and how it led them to disaster. This eventually led them to demanding a king, which was the right solution, but they asked for all the wrong reasons. Their first king solved the problem of foreign oppressors while becoming an oppressor himself. All this returns us to that key characteristic of civil government, that it is provisional, both temporary and sinful. While established by God to maintain justice, it so often falls short of its duty and instead accomplishes evil. And God's people are left crying out for deliverance. And so we must pray all the more fervently for those in authority over us. 
Do you pray daily for your leaders? And do you pray daily, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do trust and believe that you, in establishing the Noahic covenant, worked in your perfect wisdom in establishing civil government to maintain justice, to preserve mankind as you were setting the stage for our redemption. And Lord, we do give you thanks that we live in a country today with a government that is working with one of the best justice systems in the world. And Lord, we do pray for our government. We do pray for our government leaders. Even as we continue to pray, come Lord Jesus. Lord, we do thank you that you have worked for our salvation in his first coming. Even as he was crucified as one of the if not the greatest acts of civil, uh, greatest acts of evil committed by a civil government. And yet it worked in your provision for our good and for our salvation. And so our faith is in Christ. And Lord, we pray that this gospel would go out to the ends of the earth. We do pray for those around the world who are suffering under government persecution. We pray that you would continue uh, in our country to protect freedom of religion and worship. And we pray, Lord, for those ruling over us, that they would know you, that they would uh, promote and maintain justice. And we pray, Lord, for the rest of our worship service this morning, that we would honor and glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen.